Boo to you, Docolo. You're listening to the Documenteers podcast, the greatest podcast about documentaries in the known universe. I am Bob Sham, and this is our very first episode for the month of Creeptober. Creeptober October, we got some scary-ass shit to help bring in this month of Creepalicious documentaries. We'll be talking about the corruption of power, strange hillbilly flying monsters, horses, and the men who love them, the history of witchcraft, all kinds of blood-curdling shorties, but this special Friday full episode drop to break in Creeptober is about the scariest aspect of sports that isn't horrific injuries or freak accidents resulting in death. We're talking about the seething rage of mob, mob mentality and how it can really ruin a life if you have the misfortune to disaffect the sports team in a playoff run. Drew is with me and we skip ahead in our 30 for 30 count to discuss the Alex Gibney directed documentary about one of the most infamous scapegoat cases in modern baseball, the Steve Bartman incident. And it also parallels the Bill Buckner misgrounder that resulted in the 1986 Mets stealing away a World Series from the Boston Red Sox. That kind of fame can affect a person in a way that can be difficult. Chicago is not presented in its most positive self in this documentary. And Chicago is a very important city to myself and my youth in the sense that Chicago was the first big fucking city that I ever went to that was bigger than Nashville. I have fond memories of some Chicago summers in my youth. And since we've recorded this episode, I returned to Chicago on a trip with Angela for the first time in nearly 20 years and had a fucking wonderful time and one of the most friendly experiences i've ever had in the windy city i recall things being a lot grittier when i was there as a child running around on the streets of half broke townhouse neighborhoods where you could smell chocolate in the streets from the nearby tootsie roll factory my usual countryside tennessee childhood involved a lot of me being in my room but in chicago i felt like some scrappy kid you would see in a television show running around with packs of toe-headed Catholic cousins, riding bikes, fishing with corn in the parks, catching nothing because what could you possibly want from those ponds, and of course, loving the Chicago Cubs despite them losing constantly. Going back to the city recently, I felt so comfortable there. If it didn't turn into Antarctica in the winter, I would probably be living there, but we Southerners can't handle that shit. Also, I want to shout out the architecture tour that they do on the Chicago River. You can hit them up at the base of the Navy Pier. What I thought might be some overpriced touristy shit turned out to be a legitimately scenic and enjoyable presentation of the history of some of Chicago's iconic buildings and the eras that built them. No fucking shit. Even if you're from Chicago and never think to do this, I get it. We Nashvillians often don't put on cowboy hats and hit up lower Broadway unless you work there. But this architecture tour was a lot of fun. Shout out to Kyle, who did an amazing job as the tour guide. Kyle is a public school teacher, so he's teaching right now. Shout out to our amazing teachers. We've got to support them. But maybe on the weekends or this next summer, see if you can't find an architecture tour with Kyle. He did an amazing job. You won't be disappointed. And there's a bar on the boat. I mean, it's fucking Chicago. Of course there's a bar on the boat. You actually see an architecture tour boat briefly in this film we're discussing. Oh shit, we never said what our documentary for today is. Drew and I are talking about Catching Hell, the Alex Gibney movie 
And Kyle actually told me he was at the game where the Bartman incident happened. And he would have been just a wee boy at that time. I wonder if he chucked a pizza at Steve Bartman. All of us Cubs fans were weak in that moment. This creeptastic Monday night, we drop another creepy aspect of existence, specifically the amalgamation of Christianity and power and the complete lack of accountability that results. It's Jesus Christ for the powerful only. Poor people need not apply in Jesse Moss's Netflix original docuseries, The Family. And it happens to be executive produced by today's director, Alex Gibney. That dude gets around. Angela and I break down our, I believe, second docuseries this year. Hit us up for all that next week right here on The Documenteers. I don't inject a lot of jams on this episode outside of moments from the film, a lot of take me out to the ball game talk. I'd like to note that the author I couldn't remember who wrote the fantastic sports book, The Bad Guys Won, is the writer Jeff Perlman. It's a solid read and I promise you don't have to be a Mets fan to enjoy it. You can find more about us and ways of contacting us over at documenteerspodcast.com. Giving us five stars and a review on places like Apple Podcasts ups our profile and helps people to find us better. If you like us, talk about us to folks who like movies and documentaries and podcasts. We really like what this podcast is evolving into, but we still need all the help we can get with good reviews. It's the only thing the internet feeds on, and I acknowledge that everything is asking for a review and that sucks, but we're not a corporation. We're just folks who put in a lot of time into a movie podcast in the eternal hopes that you enjoy it and share it and want to hear more, regardless of the sick, sick episode that we're dropping two Mondays from now. Thresholds will be tested. Let's get to this Gib joint and allow me to make a documenteer's dedication. I would like to dedicate this episode to the late, great Bill Buckner, the former Cub and Red Sox player who passed away late last May. He may have been often overshadowed by a moment for much of his career, but it is a fact that Bill Buckner was an amazing baseball player, and I know he is missed by many fans from many towns. Swing it up in Shangri-La, Billy Buck, and keep on docking. Here is a motion picture film, a thousand feet, 16,000 separate photographs. Let's tidy up this tangle of film by putting it on a reel. Yeah, you catching hell? Ready to catch that hell? It's a month for hell. Catch that fresh hell. All month long is hell. What the hell? Catch it. Now, last year for Creeptober, we talked about Reggie Miller and how he fucking wiped his butthole with John Starks, Patrick Ewing, and how you cried and cried and peed your pants and cried and called out to your father and mother. Is it going to be okay? And they're like, we're busy. Shut the hell up. But this time, we get you back. This is a fresh hell for you. You know, I think there's real fear in this one for everyone. Truly. Layers of dread in this one. 
Well, yeah, but you're already peeing. I pee all the time. <laughs> it's not that I don't have control. It's These are choices. It's not just because it's creeped over. This 30 for 30 that we're discussing is one I've been waiting to get to for a while. I thought this month would be appropriate because the word hell's in the title. And you skipped ahead just for it. Yeah. So you couldn't wait that long for it. For hell. Hell. What the hell? Catching Hell, directed by Alex Gibney. And this film's about the worst day in someone's life. So I've heard this uh, documentary-themed podcast before. So I feel like I I recognize the name Alex Gibney from something. We talked about his film, The Inventor. He also did the, The Smartest Guys in the Room, the Enron documentary. He did Going Clear. The HBO Scientology documentary. That makes sense, because if you're kind of a big deal, you can pull some stuff like framing your documentary through a radio interviewing you about the documentary that you're currently filming. Alex Gibney goes for it. He knows what you don't like, and he'll be like, I'm going to do it, and you're not going to hate it that much. I'm kind of a big deal. I'm going to make you conflicted. I'm going to do all the bullshit tricks and make you still reasonably enjoy this film. We're watching Catching Hell. No, we're dis- we've already watched it. We're discussing Catching Hell by Alex Gibney, which is about Steve Bartman and the Cubs. And what what year was this? 2004? Three? Four? Three. I did grow up a Cubs fan. I feel fairly disconnected these past few years, admittedly. Oh, yeah. Well, you win one World Series, and now you're like, well, checking out. <laughs> the fan base has gotten weirder since the World Series. I wouldn't say it's an epidemic, but... Oh. Bring it up with Red Sox fans. Yeah. <laughs> he does in this documentary constantly link you two together. I think it's kind of a fair comparison, right? It's in terms of, I mean, they're both out of it now, but in terms of a history of hard luck. Oh, yeah. At the time, I well, would not say, at the time this was made, but at the time of the event of this story, they were the two longest non-winning streaks. Yeah. 1908 and 1918. Curses hadn't yet to be broken. Unless you were from Florida and were somehow a Marlins fan. There's no Marlins I don't know how that happens. It seemed like everyone wanted a Cubs-Red Sox World Series that year. Yep, and the Red Sox fucked it up first. That was the year of the Aaron Boone home run. Yeah. And Grady Little leaving Pedro Martinez in too long. I thought the Sox won that year. Not in 2003. No, they won the the following year. That's right. The Marlins won that year. But the the Cubs. Everyone's ever rooted for the Marlins in the World Series. Yeah. Even then. (laughs) They won. Well, let's strip the team down for parts again. (laughs) Damn Marlins. No wonder you don't have any fans. I totally forgot. But the Cubs beat um, the Braves to go to the conference. And for me, that was a big deal. Up until they won the World Series. That was the pinnacle in my lifetime of Cubs achievement. Yeah, especially living in a quote-unquote Braves country. Yeah, well, that's the As thing. Cubs fan. There's not really a rivalry, but because I'm surrounded by Braves stuff, it was like the two cable channels. I picked one. Yeah, the Superstation or Ted Turner? Yeah, I picked the Superstation. And it was a WGN radio show that is interviewing Alex Gibney. And Alex Gibney is in the studio with me. He is directing a documentary on Steve Bartman and everything that went into that fateful night through today. Of course, Alex Gibney's from Boston. Actually grew up in Boston. So he has to throw in his Boston-ness, right? Oh yeah, right off the bat. But he's got something that can relate here. We're talking about scapegoating here. It was through the pain of 1986 that I recognized the agony here in Chicago. A slightly different thing, but but still, that moment where you're so close to tasting 
you know, that postseason glory. And in Boston, what we were one strike away, there was nobody on base, and then everything just collapsed. And Bill Buckner, not unlike, um, you know, Steve Barton, became the scapegoat. The scary thing about this is the fan base. You're a huge sports fan. What's the biggest bullshit aspect of any sport? Probably the politics of shit. Billionaires getting people to pay tax money to build a stadium. Many people paying for something that often they can't afford tickets to, especially if the team's good. That's kind of the big bullshit of sports, I feel like. And also, fans can be insane. And stadium prices. Our Creeptober episode started with uh, just great, wonderful footage of the Mets winning the World Series. Yes. So beautiful. Now, you're a Mets fan, and I'm very aware of this year because I read that book, The Bad Guys Won. Yeah, the 86 Mets. I forget the author off the top of my head, but it's a great book. Check it out. Admittedly, I haven't read a lot of sports themed books, but it's one of the best, especially in the oral history fact genre. Those 86 Mets were something else. (laughs) They were totally goddamn insane. But this, not as insane as this game, that game six of the 86 World Series with the Red Sox. One strike away from breaking their curse on multiple occasions, and they have this kind of epic meltdown. I was already annoyed by this film. I was already annoyed by the film. It got me back with this wonderful Mets footage of a moment that brings me great happiness. You know, my my cousin <laughs> right. Mookie Wilson hitting the ball between Bill Buckner's legs. That's right. Tell us what happened. What what what, what happened with Bill Buckner after the game was tied up on a wild pitch before it. Little dribbler down the line, first base. Bill Buckner goes to field it. Little roller up along first. Behind the bag. It gets through Buckner. Right between his legs. Winning run scores. Here comes Knight and the Mets win it. Mets win game six. I did like that they threw in here that most people, this is the indelible image of games of this World Series of 1986. So most people thought that that was game seven, that the World Series was over as soon as Bill Buckner made his error. But there was still a Game 7 to be played. It just kind of felt like it was over, because this cloud of dread came over the Red Sox there that was like, we had this in the bag. Something crazy happened. A signed flash congratulating the the Red Sox before the game was over. The curse is back. I did like the uh, the behind-the-scenes footage of them just really quickly hustling out the championship trophy and the champagne and the cameramen from the Red Sox locker room. <laughs> were set up there like better get out of here before anyone sees us they were talking about how they had they showed a picture someone where it showed buckner wearing like a cubs batting glove because buckner used to play for the cubs dodgers wasn't he a met for like a year or something don't think so but he, he did play for a couple of teams he'd, he'd gone he'd gotten around but buckner was like a very good player oh yeah he had more hits than ted williams yeah he won a batting title one year a serious player that it's always been a travesty that his legacy you know, was this one play. A little melancholy, too, because Bill Buckner died just a few months ago. Yeah, that's and, true, right here in 2019. And he was, and he's, I know he's infamous for this, and it's a big reason why I know about Bill Buckner, but I also know enough about him to know he was very talented, and it, it makes me sad to know Bill Buckner is not with us anymore. And to kind of ruin the twist... Because he did die a few years, a few months ago, it was especially nice to see the little redemption story at the end. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We'll get to that. But yeah, the ball goes between Buckner's legs. Now, the Sox had another game to lose, right, after that? They did. Game seven, and you know what? They lost. 
And they and lost. That's when the World Series. But the blame still stunk, stuck, stunk and stuck <laughs> to Buckner missing that, whiffing that base hit. They didn't mention, though. It kind of threw it in a little bit later. Oh, right. The pitcher. Manager decisions. They did try to put the a little bit of the blame on the pitcher for throwing the wild pitch well, the, that tied the game right before that. That had nothing to do with Buckner. They'd already blown the that's lead. That's true. It was a wild pitch, though. Can you believe this ball game is shame? Years later, I wondered why no one made more of that moment. Until Stanley's wild pitch, a terrible mistake. The Sox were ahead. Why did no one focus on that moment? And then and the pitcher interviewed later on was like, well. They quickly moved past Stanley's wild pitch, and Stanley himself seemed only too happy to cast the blame elsewhere. Just a sinker on the ground at first base. Didn't make the play. I did my job. I got a ground ball. He just didn't make the play. Yeah, he point, He passed the buck. Stanley, yeah. he passed the fucking buck Ooh. on Buckner. <laughs> passed the buck to buck. But the manager's decisions there, Bill Buckner had been getting removed from most of these games for defensive uh, substitution later on anyways. He had ankle problems right now. Yeah. So he wasn't moving around as great as he could have been. It was very questionable that he was in that position to field that ball in the first place anyways. But you know what? Bill Buckner died for our sins. And he got scapegoated by Boston. And it would be in the forefront of modern Red Sox history up until they would finally win their World Series. So we've been talking for however long we've been talking right now. And it's been all about the Red Sox. I actually grew up in Boston. Yeah, they. you notice they show a sad Dennis Leary for one second. I'm surprised they didn't trot out every Wahlberg or like mm. dig up Ted Williams' corpse and put it in front of the camera. Where was Stephen King in this? And <laughs> most of all, where was Bill Simmons? Yeah. Well, it, I, I worry when Bill Simmons doesn't show up in the 30 for 30. Especially if it's talking about Boston sports. Yeah, could someone check on Bill Simmons, <laughs> Maybe please? Gibney had the poll to do this without Simmons getting his own scenes. <laughs> He's the one director that told Bill Simmons no. He's <laughs> like, look, I've already uh, got the scenes of myself. Can you do an Alex <laughs> Gibney impression? Uh, Bill, no. No, Bill, not this time. So Bill. I'm here to talk about this documentary that I'm making right now. I'll be using these clips in said documentary, Inception. I'm going to use a strange animation uh, for your parts. Oh, yeah. That was kind of weird. There was, uh, yeah. Just was... <laughs> thrown in there for a second or two. Yo, Alex, if you need like half-assed animations, give me a call, buddy. <laughs> I'll probably do it for half the rate you paid whoever did that. I can handle this. Yeah. They did make another tenuous connection here that was a little strange in that it does not even remotely an equivalent to the Bill Buckner play and the Steve Bartman play that we're talking about in this film. But Steve Lyons was there as an announcer, as a broadcaster for television for the Bartman game. Right. So he's already a part of this. So they showed his historic gaffe, why he's infamous as a baseball player. And it's great because it's one of my personal favorite baseball YouTube videos. I was trying to beat out a bunt and I slid headfirst into first base and I was out, but they called me safe. So I was like, yeah. Good effort by Steve Lyons. And I stood up and I felt all this dirt running down the inside of my pants. And I forgot I was still standing on first base and I just brain cramped and pulled my pants down right there. Somehow forgets that he's <laughs> at first base in front of a stadium full of people and just drops his drawers and shakes them out to get the dirt out of them. <laughs> just right there at first base. <laughs> It'd have been cool if he just never questioned it when people came out and be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> 
So that's that's a great moment, and and I guess they were trying to draw some kind of line, like your mind just blanks for a second, and that happens. It can happen to anybody, and it happened to him that he forgot he was in front of a stadium full of people, and uh, dropped trout to shake some dirt out. I'll take that over Bill Buckner any day. Now they didn't show that full clip. Did he? Was you his, can find it pretty much. Did anywhere. his dick come out? Did he pull his pants all down? He pulled his pants all the way down. He was still wearing his uh, slatten shorts under there. Oh, okay. <laughs> he just, uh, like a toddler at the urinal, just dropped those things down. Bill Buckner, the the Red Sox great scapegoat. It takes a team to fuck this shit up. Okay, let's finally go back to the Cubs, okay? Cubbies. Let's go back to the point of this movie now that we've uh, talked about Alex Gibney's interview and his favorite team growing up and how <laughs> that affected him. I actually grew up in Boston. Now, the Cubs back in the day... I like the animation on the Billy Goat Curse. Right. When, 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 uh, before they won this last one, what was it? 1908 or some shit? Yeah, 1908. They were good right before they stopped winning. They were good in those early, early 20th century times. Man, they were great when there were four teams in baseball. (laughs) Yeah. Did you hear that, Montreal Canadiens? Ooh, got them. You're not that great, bro. (laughs) Yeah, you have the most titles. Most of them were when there were six teams. <laughs> now I get a lot of questions. Like when people see me wear like a Cubs hat, I get a, are you from Chicago? And it gets a little stiff when I say I'm not. Even though I've been watching this shit since I was a kid, you know. Look, dude, we had 10 channels. But when I was a kid and I would go up to Chicago with family, because I had some in-laws there, if they found out I was a, a Cubs fan, which kind of, kind of was just a coincidence because I had become one before I ever went up there or met any of them. Like, they embraced it. They were like, yeah, because they sucked the big one <laughs> in the early 90s. And I know everything about the, that early 90s team. But I loved them, and I watched so many games, and they embraced the fact that I was a big Cubs fan. But let me tell you something. Good on you. I kind of was dabbling in all over in baseball. And at that time, with what? with the feverishness of the Bulls, Drew, I had a White Sox cap that I also sometimes wore. And Is I remember it the one going, with the little batter silhouette? Because that's a sweet cap. No, it's just the soft, like Dr. Dre. I think I was trying to be like Dr. Dre. <laughs> but I, I remember having that hat and they were like, and I was watching a lot of Cubs games, but they're like, what are you doing? Like, I just wanted to watch Chicago teams. This Tennessee boys idea that I have to pick one baseball team or the other and not only pick one, but hate the other. That was explained to me. <laughs> but I don't fucking hate the the White Sox like at all. They're Outside fine. of Chicago, there's you know, that's probably fine. I understand. Look, it's very expensive Cubs tickets, so I White Sox tickets were more affordable when I was younger. So I can't blame people. Still for, are for <laughs> yeah, and they won a series like within the last fifteen years, right? <laughs> Not more recently than the Cubs. That's true. Spoiler alerts. Oh man, we we can't reveal that yet. <laughs> This Who remembers that? Come on. Long fucking time ago, this dude comes in with a billy goat into the Cubs uh, Wrigley Field. Now picture a really poorly drawn billy goat. Yeah, this weird animations here. I got. I like this film, but I'm going to dock it right there. <laughs> and they're like, bro, you can't bring your billy goat in here. And the guy's like, I got to leave with my goat. Well, guess what? The Cubbies is not going to win anymore. Wrong accent. What's my what's the Chicago? Hey there, get the che- uh, the Italian the hot dogs and the Italian old style. Yeah, that's it exactly. The, the pizza, absolutely perfect. Them pizza, the <laughs> it's not pizza. 
we talked to a reporter, a writer. His name is Wayne Drez, and he points out something. He's pretty much around. I did not like this guy. Yeah. How did you feel about him? You did not like him? I did not like him. Wow. Why, what made you turn on this dude? Well, first of all, was just when he first shows up and, you know, his look and... His sleepy eyes. Are you judging his sleepy <laughs> eyes? His general mannerisms. And then later on in the film, he becomes less likable and then even less likable. Yeah. Reporters, man. Well, he shouldn't have done that, Sieg Heil. That's not going to help your case. <laughs> I'm kidding. He does not do but that. Right off the bat, he just had uh, one of those faces you don't like. I was kind of feeling what he was saying when we met him early on. I mean, in my lifetime, if you look at the history of the Cubs, they've been really good. So for me, I don't necessarily, you know, understand the heartbreak like somebody who's, uh, you know, 80 years old might. When I first started watching the Cubs, they weren't very good, but they had some great players. So when he says, in my life, he never thought that they were like a sucky team. He understood that they hadn't won a title in a very long time. But to him, they weren't a sucky team. And I kind of felt that way as well, you know. Even in their shitty days, Mark Grace, Sammy Sosa, they were getting doing some things. But the pitching was really shit in the early 90s, especially after Greg Maddox went to Atlanta. And then uh, every Cubs fan was like, we're cursed, their pitching's cursed. They didn't call him back by midnight. Funny thing is, Maddox would eventually come back. But it wasn't the super lovable losers like buffoonery, like the 62 Mets or the Indians of Major League fame. You weren't that kind of bad. No. In this era. No. You know what? I'm going to give the movie a point back that you took away for the terrible animation. Okay. For, in its little montage of cursed moments for the Cubs, having the Leon Durham ball go through his legs. Ground ball hit the Durham. That one gets forgotten a lot, and that is the really strong parallel. That was the same season that they traded away Bill Buckner. Oh, right. And then his replacement has a ball go through his legs. It's a nice touch. In 1984, two years before it happened to Buckner at first base, and while it wasn't kind of a game-deciding moment, it definitely definitely might have turned that season around, series around. Spooky. It's creeptobery. But the Cubs had some... They had some stars, Ryan Sandberg, Ron Santo. I mentioned Mark Grace, Sammy Sosa. Not at the same time. No, not at the same <laughs> time. Uh, but we get tour in the early 2000s. The Cubs are rolling on. Dusty Baker's the manager. And listen to this lineup. Moises Alou, oh. Sammy Sosa, oh. Carlos Sombrero, oh. oh. Kerry Wood. Oh. Uh, yeah, you, <laughs> you got you to come a little when you hear Kerry Wood's name. <laughs> And Mark Pryor, who had, who was fucking great that year. Cy Young candidate Mark Pryor started game six. Yes. The fateful game. But and they, yeah, those 2003 Cubs were no joke. Why didn't they win, truly? Well. I guess we'll find out exactly why. Probably because some dude with a billy goat was like, if I can't, if my goat can't go to the stadium, and I'm not <laughs> going to the stadium, and you're not winning any more games. This is my goat. I'm going to fuck it in the bleachers if I please. What a brat this guy must be. Was this the first, like, frat bro? This is my goat, dude. Well, technically he was married to that goat, so. Oh, well, love uh, is can, love. Can you bring my wife to the game? Bullshit. Now, Pryor's throwing well. It's two to nothing. It's in the seventh inning. And Bernie Mac fucks it up for the Cubs. The ball me out with the crowd. Dude, I'm telling you, you know, I'm not that uptight, but when I hear the seventh inning stretch, take me out to the ball game, you got to sing it like Harry sung it 
or seriously going to fuck everything up. Not like Bill Murray sings it. Pay me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and cracker jack. This should be all about us feeling sorry for Bernie Mac getting scapegoated. He likes to throw out those other people who maybe it should be their fault. Maybe it should be their fault. <laughs> should have spent some more time on Bernie Mac. Maybe it was God's fault. Maybe it was Bernie Mac's fault. Another uh, a great comedian who is another great person who's gone. I actually loved Bernie Mac and rest in peace, Bernie. Except I forgive you. I forgive you for fucking up the uh, the 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 take me out to the ball game. So what did he do? He's singing "Take Me Out to the Ball Game." Take me out to the crowd. This is how it's supposed to go. Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jacks. I don't care if I ever get back because it's root, root, root for the Cubbies. Harry Carey style. When it's a shame, for it's one, two, three strikes, you're out in the old ball game. Come on, Cubs, score some runs. But it didn't go that way. Bernie Mac did not sing it like you just sang it. Oh, you can't no. say that before it happens, man. I think they said Bernie Mac was more of a White Sox fan anyway. Maybe he was planted there by the White Sox. Oh, shit. Sabotage the Cubs. Alex Gibney, where are you at on this one? He didn't know enough to show it. It was kind of funny. All right. I mean, we can all laugh. We've got a World Series now. All water under the bridge. There's a foul ball in the eighth inning. Describe what happens here, Drew. We're in the eighth inning. It's three to nothing Cubs. Five outs away from making it to the World Series to try to break that curse that goes back to 1908. Luis Castillo's at the plate for the Marlins. Mark Pryor is still in this game. He's pitching a shutout to Jem. Pretty sure Luis Castillo used to be a Cub. Everybody is very, very excited in this crowd. You can feel this energy at Wrigley Field. The curse is going to be broken. They're doing it. They're five outs away from the World Series with this great team. Castillo flares, just a little little foul ball down the line. Looks like it's easily into the seats, but the wind's pushing on it a little bit. The wind's pushing on this foul ball. Wow, you're really And it comes this right down. down to the wall where six or seven fans reach their hands out to try to catch a foul ball in the game that's going to bring their cubbies to the World Series, a historic artifact. Aisle four, row eight, seat one, one, three. One dork wearing headphones, <laughs> a Cubs hat, and a green turtleneck. Gets his hand on the ball. F totally flubs it. Ball bounces off his hands, rolls around. Guy next to him picks it up, starts dancing around. I got the ball. But Where? left fielder Moise Alou, he of the fame of peeing on his hands to pardon them so he didn't have to wear batting gloves, throws a hissy fit in the outfield. Gets pissed. And he is pointing to this fan and yelling and jumping up and down and slamming his glove because he could have caught that ball if it was not hit on the hands of that fan. At first, people didn't know what happened. They just thought, oh, foul ball. Okay. Yeah. Keep going with the game. We're up 3 nothing. Five outs to go. Now, fan... But it was Alou's reaction Yes. that drew everybody to what just happened. Yeah. Did somebody fuck this up for us? 
this guy rocking a green turtleneck like a true fuck boy. So, Listening to headphones at the game like good. a true, true hardcore fan. Yeah, yeah. And he just sits there. He sits. He kind of interfered with this foul ball, but it was something that like many other people were trying to do at the same time. And you hear Steve Lyons broadcasting this shit, and he goes, That could be huge. Well, there's no question that that was a huge play because I totally believe that Alou would have caught the ball. That right there. That could be huge. And they show about 37 different replays of it. <laughs> yes. How many times it. do you think they replayed that? that There's time? a little delay because the umpires have to decide whether to call fan interference. Even with all those replays, it's almost impossible to tell if the ball would have landed in the stands or on the field of play. Bartman doesn't catch the ball. Steve Bartman apparently deflects the ball. It lands at my feet. And one of the guys I'm with picks up the ball. We all start high-fiving him. The guy that grabbed it, I seen, turned out to be a friend of mine. He was going to celebrate with the ball, like, hey, I got a ball. And I'm like, Jim, sit down, man. You know, you have no idea what just happened. Yeah! And he's, like, super excited to get this foul ball. And people are thinking, like, that motherfucker. It was you. But what happens after that? They do not call him out. Inconclusive. Can't, can't blame the umpires on this one. Totally. Foul not. ball. All right. Cubs are still up three to nothing. Mark Pryor's pitching great. Mullins rattle off a couple hits. Alex Gonzalez, he drops a base hit. Round ball. <laughs> right to Alex Gonzalez. The best fielding percentage of any shortstop in the major leagues. He's as uh, automatic as they come. He gets the double play ball that would end the inning. Flubs it. Everyone's safe. Now, Cubs fans are feeling that dread. They're goats. <laughs> you don't think it was Alex Gonzalez's error? Yeah, Alex oh. Gonzalez's error. That out there. Marlon's getting a hot bat. They know who actually interfered right now, not the dude that was like, yippee yay. <laughs> they gradually find out this guy we're talking about. His name is Steve Bartman. He just sits there. He doesn't seem to put up much. You can tell he knows shit's fucked. You can tell that there's something building inside of him that sucks that no one wants to be in. You can tell that he knows he can feel the energy of everyone around him staring daggers into his back. Somebody hit that! Hit him! And he's actually with a couple of people. I'm not aware of how much they know and what they don't know. Security guards come and talk to the guy sitting next to him, and he says he doesn't point Steve out. And I mean, on the camera, it kind of looks like I'm pointing at Bartman, which I really wasn't. I'm just saying, I didn't touch the ball. I don't know. Sure looks like it. But it, I, you can tell he's probably like look like pointing like chin down <laughs> while he's talking. The security's trying to get rid of him, or trying to escort him out. And he's like, "It wasn't me, man. I'm not going. It wasn't me. It wasn't me." Meanwhile, in the game, after that booted ground ball that would have closed it down, that was kind of three strikes for Cubs dread. You had Bernie Mac start them with a little bit of dread by declaring them champs early. Damn! Damn! Then you had this weird fan interference play. Cubs fans are ready to panic. They believe in this curse. They're like, things are about to go wrong. Now two things have gone wrong. Alex Gonzalez makes that error. Man, that's strike three as far as curse goes. Now, Marlins rattle off eight runs in the inning. <laughs> After what would have been an inning-ending double play by Alex Gonzalez. Eight runs. Would have shut it down at a still a three-to-one lead, despite it Bartman's interference. No, they just keep hitting and keep hitting and keep hitting, and every Cubs fan in this stadium is like, holy shit, it happened again. And that section 
is just starting to gravitate more, build more animosity. People are fucking screaming death threats at this dude. Yeah, we're gonna kill you! We got some real Windy City trash in this movie, man. Is this when the entire crowd outside the stadium, the city of Chicago, it looks like, yeah. just starts chanting asshole. The whole stadium joins in while pointing at Steve Bartman. And a lot, of, and it takes a while for everyone to get what's going on. In the stadium, they point this out. There was no Jumbotron back then. It was old school. Uh, change the letters out, uh, change the hit numbers out by hand and shit, which was always a lot of fun. Classic Wrigley. I never could afford to go. We were too broke when I was a kid. One of the best things, in my opinion, that this documentary had was he managed to find somebody who was in the upper deck for this game who was kind of filming home movies from the upper deck. So you had this personal like camcorder view of the outside of the stadium because he could turn around and see the fans in the street and then turn around his camera again and show you the, the people in the stadium all just turning. They'd been happy. He was having like camcorder selfies like this is the year we're up three nothing it's happening and it all turns just that asshole chant and then as the runs keep coming and keep coming and they keep showing the replays of this guy death threats people are throwing their beers on him some guy who he tracked down in interviews in this documentary went down to confront him and try to fight him oh, this and then fucking, gets kicked out by security. This fucking douchebag. And he seemed pretty proud of that still. His runs being scored and that's kind of when I, that, kind of, that's when I went down there to go get my two cents worth, I guess. Um, so I didn't know who it was specifically until I walked down, got down that aisle and I said, you know, where's the guy? I said, where's the asshole? That's what I said. And then everyone was pointing. So they gave him up right away. Can I go, you think it's funny? I said, you know. Let's go outside, we'll see how funny it is. And he just kept looking and just, I think, just turned around and sat down. That's when the ushers were telling me to get back to my seat. Twice they told me, and I said, no. And then the third time they said, you're out of here. So I'll go back to my seat. And I said, no, it's too late. Yeah, you're a twat. I was interviewed in that. Yeah, I went down there and tried to fight him, and then they threw me out. Oh, they are throwing beer on him down there, aren't they? Don't. Yeah, you're, that's because you're a twat. <laughs> go away. Have you ever been tossed out of a game before? Uh, I think maybe once. Twice. Was that your first time being thrown out of a baseball game? And he kind of smells. He's like, nah. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> yeah. Of course it's not you, his first time. You act the asshole more have, than once. Have you ever been thrown out of a baseball game? No, I want to watch the baseball game. That's the idea, right? <laughs> Wouldn't you rather just focus all your range and energy from your sad home life into like an uh, unsuspecting fan at a ballpark? All right, let's, let's real talk here for a second. Okay. Obviously, if you're in Steve Bartman's shoes, you're reaching for that baseball. They make that point in this movie plenty of times. You're not even thinking about it. It could have been anybody. Everybody else around him was too. It could have been anybody. It just happened to be him. But if you're in that stadium, if you're in that upper deck, and you're not quite sure what happens, but now you know what happens, your cubbies that you're a fan of went from five outs from the World Series up three to nothing to now down eight to three and all hope is lost. You're joining in that asshole chant, aren't you? I got a confession to make. When I when I watched, I remember this game very vividly. I was working in a bar. I was off work, and I was sitting at the bar, this restaurant I worked at. I was watching the game. I saw it happen. I saw Moises Salou get pissed off. I was half drunk, and I'm like, this motherfucker, it would have been out. The inning would have been over. They scored eight runs with one out left. Yeah, the inning wouldn't have been over if Alou caught that one. Oh, no? The ground ball to Gonzalez. 
Sure. If he makes that error again and then everybody hits. But you don't know. That that dread might not have come in. Maybe Gonzalez fields that ball clean. You never know. At that time, I realized even before I, I've seen this before, even before I saw this film, that, that ultimately once I sobered up and looked back on the whole affair, it's not Steve Bartman's fault that they blew eight runs. That's the baseball player's fault. They're supposed to be able to handle these, the stadium shit. Well, here's the thing. The Cubs are solely responsible. But you kind of can't say that it meant nothing. It definitely changed the atmosphere. You could That yes. home footage from the upper deck. The fans are still mad at that fan over there. They're all chanting. They're all chanting, well, a word I can't say. Was so vivid just watching this turn from this optimism to dread to anger. An angry crowd, man. There's a few things scarier than that. Yeah, no doubt about that. A dude from the Chicago Tribune comes over, tries to hand him a card, and, <laughs> and it looks like he's politely declining it. He does, and then he gives it to the, the friends that are there with Bartman. And yeah. Another good part of this talk, everybody thought that Bartman was alone because yeah. he looks like that. He's just sitting in that seat. But he had two friends there with him who are shitty friends. <laughs> yeah. You know, I feel like... Most people would do what they're doing. I'm not saying it's right. I feel like I know too many people that would also just sit there. Even the announcers are getting into it, though. Here in Wrigley, when the opposing team hits a home run, they throw the ball back onto the field. I'm surprised someone hasn't thrown that fan onto the field. Oh, and everybody yeah. in the production room is like, oh, nice one. Good line. <laughs> yeah, and people who, there are people like loading the outside of Wrigley. They don't see the game directly, but people are holding up TVs, portable TVs. And they see these replays and they hear these announcers. And they're seeing Bartman fumble with a foul ball that Moises Alou could have allegedly caught over and over and over. And then Steve turns to... A lady that was sitting next to him. Bartman turned around to us and said to me, I think, do you think I did anything wrong? And then he stands up, does the Bartman. Yo, hey, what's happening, dude? I'm a guy with a rep for being rude, terrorizing people wherever I go. It's not intentional, just keeping the flow. <laughs> it changes the hearts and minds of the entire Wrigley Standing field. Standing ovation. They call it the friendly confine. Erica Amundsen had never seen something so unfriendly in the friendly confines. The friendly confines? They hung a goat once to try to break the curse. <laughs> this feverish notion between the Red Sox and the Cubs fans, there's a reason why they're comparable. And they were also trying to summon Satan. But Well, that would have been cool. <laughs> they talk about how in one half inning, Wrigley Field went from feeling like Mardi Gras to a funeral. Everybody in that stadium knew that, much like the Bill Buckner game, it was game six. There was still a game seven to be played, but there was no chance the Cubs were coming back from this. No. It's, it, they said that it seemed like the, the Cubs or the fan base had already been like, we're fucked. It's not going to happen. Sure enough, they lose that last game, but all the blame is still on Bartman. And when security surrounds him and beers are just getting thrown at him constantly... They're talking about one guy was trying to throw a pizza at him. Everybody's trying to throw whatever they can at this guy because now you've got this mob mentality. The whole crowd is chanting asshole, pointing at this guy. That's scary as fuck. This oh. is this is perfect Creeptober material, man. And when security is is bringing him through, it's like a gauntlet. It looks like some medieval thing where you gotta you get walked through the crowd and everybody's throwing tomatoes at you and hurling the best insults they can. 
He's getting walked up through this thing. They put a, a sweatshirt over his face, and a fan just reaches over and rips the sweatshirt right off his face. Oh, no. I had him holding, like, a sweatshirt over his face, and I ripped the sweatshirt down over his face, and then they, the security guards pushed me against the wall, and then they came running up here with him. Why, why did you do that? Because I wanted to expose him for ruining what could be a once-in-a-lifetime once experience. You need to be responsible for what you did. We need to see you, see your shame. <laughs> but the audio they had from this guy's home footage in this, you hear him getting walked through the stadium and you hear just random voices yelling in the background, we're going to kill you. We're going to kill you. Someone says, put a 12 gauge in his mouth and pull the trigger. Jesus. Like, whoa, man. This is terrifying. It's a lynch mob mentality. Let's talk about it being like the darkest hour in Wrigley Field's history. Just seeing what these fans are capable of this moment go through the gauntlet of stairwells trying to get out of there put a 12 gauge in his mouth and pull the trigger yeah <laughs> we're gonna kill you people are fucking yelling we're gonna kill you we're gonna kill you this is why they're shitty friends though yeah i can see them standing there next sitting there next to him not saying anything during this whole terrifying thing but after security tries to escort him out of the stadium realizes they're not even going to get that they basically lock him in the security office for a while yeah to let things calm down and then they go to get his friends, and they're gone. They bailed out of there. Wow, good friends. And that's some shitty friends. You think Bartman got them their tickets, too? <laughs> Probably. He was the only one who seemed like a true fan. People are threatening to kill your friend over, honestly, an innocent mistake. Folks, stand up for your fucking friends, man. Yeah, you can be there. If they tell you to leave, like, we've got to put him in a disguise, so you guys got to get out of here, that's different. But the security officer that he's interviewed in this talks about going back to find the friends to be like, okay, well, he's in a safe spot now. And they're just peace. They don't give a fuck. They are out of here. They're like, oh, I'm not with him. I never met him. But they go into this dispatch room and security has monitors that watch the game because security has to be able to see all angles of the stadium. So what is he seeing while he's standing in this dispatch room? He's seeing that play being replayed over and over and over again. There was another really interesting point here as sort of a little social experiment almost. They have a couple of, of the guys. I think one of them was the, the reporter who tried to give him his card right after it happened. But they say that part of this might have been the vitriol was so directed at him because he looked like a dork. Yeah, he did, he did look kind of like a If he like looked a like a big Chicago meathead, would everybody still yeah. have been yelling at him if, the same if way? If he weighed like 350 pounds. If he looked like a target. Pounds, if he weighed like, like a typical Chicago and weighed like 350 pounds and couldn't see his penis. Uh, making friends all <laughs> over the place. I'm sorry. There's a lot of different kind of people in Chicago. I'll have already been gone at this point. But as of this recording, I'm actually going to be in Chicago in like a two, in two weeks. <laughs> would all those chicago tough guys have come up to him then and be like hey man i want to fight you oh you can throw me out of the game yeah hey, i'm gonna throw my pizza at you security has to put him into disguise if that guy's smart right now he takes that hat off he takes his glasses off and he changes his freaking sweat and escort him out the back of the stadium yeah they change off onto a side street <laughs> to try to get him in a cab and somebody on the street recognizes him even in the disguise. <laughs> so they hustle him into the security guard's own apartment. She puts him in his, his own her own apartment just to kind of hide out for a little while. This, this thing calm down. This lady. Where he asked to watch SportsCenter. This lady actually, it was very touching how she felt true pity for this guy. And was genuinely scared for him. And at one point, this lady who's interviewed, who helped maneuver him out of here, cried 
He was humble and kind and he was a perfect guy for this. She was there. She saw how people were treating him. She felt all the energy that was going like daggers right on him. She understood that this must have been a fucking nightmare for Steve Bartman. Dusty uh, cites fan interference. He says, the only words I have, maybe he was a Marlin fan. It's the only thing I can come up with. Oh, uh, yeah. You try to get someone fucking killed, Dusty. <laughs> Don't you know you're in Chicago and the Cubs got close to the World Series? Uh, Rod Blagojevich, you remember that like <laughs> piece of dog turd? Someone ever convicts that guy of a crime? He'll never get a pardon out of this governor. He's in jail now too, right? <laughs> I hope so. What a shithole. Chicago politics, man. They eventually take him out of the apartment in a van to get back to his hotel with his friends that they rented in hopes of celebrating Chicago's trip to the World Series. Steve Bartman freaks out when they pull up to the stadium because they have to drop the security guards back off. The security guards get dropped off. That's the last time she saw him. And he was like, why are we back here? Why are we back here? And he's like kind of slumps down in the van so you can't see him through the windows. Yeah. And she's just like, man, that's that's the last time I saw him. And yeah, it's emotional. Just seeing what this guy's going through. But now we get all the reaction. You know, it's the number one story in the news cycle. Who deserves the blame for this fiasco? We will rank the possible culprits in food chain. Who's first, Michael? All right. Headset man, the fan who grabbed the ball out of the hands of Moises Alou. So I'm putting him to start. Let me tell you something. Right up here. This kid is meat. Right now, this kid is meat. Yeah, they drop his name thinking it's just going to be like a footnote. They figure out who he is. And then they spread his name out there. No one knew this guy's name. Oh, man. The sweatshirt that he was wearing at the game that said Renegades turns out to be a Little League team that he coached. Yeah. And they're all up there in his defense. Like, he's a good man. He's a good coach. Let him come home. Bartman goes silent. And the police are going to... He's getting so many death threats that the police are going to his house and guarding it. Wasn't there a Phillies pitcher from the 90s? He got blamed for ruining a game and he got death threats until he had to fucking leave Philadelphia. That sounds like Philly. Yeah. It was his parents' house, too. He lived with his parents at this time. He's 26 years old. He's in hiding. We see uh, early meme culture. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Back when you had to print it out. <laughs> All sorts of hilarious Steve Bartman jokes. Uh, some guy calls into Sports Center pretending to be Bartman and tricks Dan Patrick. Can you stay in the Chicago area? Um, do you like Howard Stern's butt cheese? Hello? We've been had. That was not Steve Bartman. But Steve does issue an apology, and it seems so sincere, but he, it's like a written apology that they read out on the news. You don't hear his voice, right? No, he's in hiding. His brother ended up reading it for him. Bartman issued a written apology read by his brother-in-law. There are a few words to describe how awful I feel uh, and what I have experienced within these last 24 hours. I've been a Cub fan all my life and fully understand the relationship between my actions and the outcome of the game. To Moises Alou, the Chicago Cubs organization, Ron Santo, Ernie Banks, and Cub fans everywhere. I am so truly sorry from the bottom of this Cub fan's broken heart. But the apology is to the Cubs and to the fans from the bottom of this Cubs fan's broken heart. He was watching the TV in the security guard's apartment. He felt bad for costing the Cubs. He's a huge Cubs fan. He feels so terrible about possibly costing the Cubs the World Series because that's what he was hoping for. 
more than anything else. The Cubs have one more game, which we already say that they lose. And despite some good bats, I mean, Kerry Wood hit a home run. Gonzalez got a good hit. But here's the thing. Choking near the end? In my lifetime, that's the fucking Cubs. Everybody knew they were losing this that's game. That's the fucking Cubs. When they went down 3 nothing in the first inning, even that amazing pitcher home run, Kerry Wood hitting three-run homer to bring them back, it still wasn't there. We had more home videos from the guy in the upper deck. From He was at game seven also. I'm just saying, like, yeah, the energy was not there. <laughs> they had that brief moment of hope on the Kerry Wood home run. But then everything kind of went to shit again after uh, Moises Alou hit a home run also. Right. To temporarily give them the lead. But man, even Steve Lyons was talking about in the booth, he doesn't remember Game 7. No. He remembers talking about Game 6 and Steve Bartman. Not Game 7. Just all this Bartman game. Then we cut back to, uh, what's your buddy? The ugly sports writer dude? Uh, Dre. Dro. Wayne. <laughs> Let's call him Wayne. <laughs> I think it was Wayne, actually. Yeah, we'll call him Wayne. It was, uh... Oh, telling here- a nice story about how he yelled at his wife because she was crying. And he's like, you don't get to cry. I've been a Cubs fan longer than you. If anyone's crying, it's going to be me. I mean, that sounds like a Cubs fan. <laughs> that Halloween, everyone was Bartman. And <laughs> one guy was the Bartman. Oof. I'm here today to introduce the next phase. The next step in the big Bart phase. I got to dance real easy to do. I learned it with no rhythm and so can you. The Bartman. Meanwhile, the guy who actually picked up the ball, it, Steve Bartman didn't even get this ball, cashing in on this publicity, sells the ball for a hundred grand. Meanwhile, Bartman's in hiding. Police are offering him thousands of dollars for an interview, and he's just gone. They give the ball a fancy hotel and dinner. Keep in mind, south side of Chicago, people are dying. Kids are hungry. They, they're, they've been abandoned and uh, segregated by their city. Hey, man, it was that ball's last meal, okay? And they had to, they pay a hundred grand for a fucking baseball, and they give it a nice hotel room, eat fucking shit, and then they blow it up. The ball was treated better than, than a lot of people that I know. I thought that was funny. They're trying to exercise the curse. What, what better advertising can you have for Harry Carey's restaurant to get rid of the curse by blowing up this baseball that everyone hates? There was a huge crowd to watch this baseball get exploded. I did like it when they, they steam-piped it into pasta. Yeah, they what do. they call it? The remnants of the exploded ball were boiled in beakers, and the steam was piped into a special scapegoat spaghetti sauce. Now, scapegoat spaghetti, man. It's been steamed with exploded baseball. Curse. Now, some of the talking heads point out that Alou's not a great fielder. But Moises is a little bitter because that's what he's mostly remembered for. He's a, He was a good hitter, but that's mostly what people think of. And I'm sick and tired of that, you know? <laughs> and here I, we are. Here we are asking you again. Ask me about. Ask but, me but, about. But why do, why, do you think, why do you think everyone's so interested in it? I, I, did you ever. I don't know. You guys know. You, you have it on, on your 50 greatest moment or worst moment on ESPN. Moises Alou's from one of the most famous families of baseball in the Dominican Republic, which is saying something. And he hit over 300 home runs in his career. And he's most famous to me, again, for being kind of the, uh, the pioneer. Well, not the pioneer, but the, uh, the most well-known practitioner of pissing on your hands so you don't need batting gloves. Aisle four, row eight, seat one, one, three, where Barman sat. It's now a part of the tour of pain. Woo! It's like a mural. Let's get our pictures taken with it. Now the tour of pain is just drinking old style until you get alcohol poisoning. I did like that Alou kind of admitted that his reaction didn't help. 
But in the moment, that's all you're thinking of. You just react. And he knew he was going to catch that ball until it got touched. And he threw his little fits. He wasn't thinking about how that would affect the fan or the vision or people's idea of the fan. He was just like, God damn it, I was going to catch that ball. Right. <laughs> the guy who uh, the security originally thought was the guy who interfered with the foul, Pat Looney, it points out how close it could have been him because he was going for it. Yeah. He just wasn't as close, but he was trying to do the same fucking thing. He wasn't in seat 113. I'm talking about guys who got lucky. Alex Gonzalez, if there wasn't the Bartman play right before that so visible with all its replays over and over and over again. Yeah. If he just flubbed a ground ball that would have ended that inning and then they go on to score eight runs in that inning. I mean, it literally is more. It would have been run out of Chicago on the rail. It's more Gonzalez's fault than it is Steve Bartman. Gonzalez is the professional baseball player paid to do exactly that. Yeah. Bartman was a fan who reacted like anybody else. Well, Wayne Dres, remember him? Um, He's awesome again. Wayne. He points out that he didn't really enjoy this and he tried to avoid it, but he's a reporter and they wanted him to go find Steve Bartman. So he staked him out and followed him to like a, a garage in a business building. And he confronts him in the garage and he's like, hey, I'm sorry, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, can we do a big Oh, Walmart? I didn't have to do this. I'm not a bad guy. No, I'm not about to fall asleep. This is just how I look. <laughs> what's that oh sorry hold on i gotta call my wife hey stop your fucking crying he says that (laughs) it's a cubs fan all right steve thanks him formally and he said uh i'm gonna talk with my legal team and we will get back to you and i was so sort of rattled by that that i had no i had no response to that uh you know like steve bartman has a legal team whatever that means it means i'm not gonna give you a goddamn interview but but Wayne does say... And I said, look, I said, you know, I don't know how many people have talked to you. I said, but just, you know, on behalf of Cub fans, you know, I'm sorry. I think it sucks what you've had to go through. And he looked at me and he said, you know, thanks. He's like, I appreciate that. Isn't that nice that Wayne is uh, speaks for all Cubs fans? Well, I mean, you could get a lot worse. <laughs> There's certain Cubs fans that would speak to all Cubs fans that you really don't want. Man, I could just picture this guy. Oh, I'm so I don't mean to bother. I didn't mean to stalk you to your <laughs> where you work. Sit in the car for seven hours until you got out. Jump out of the car and surprise you. I, I didn't mean to do that. Um, but also on behalf of Cubs fans everywhere, I would like to apologize. And then Steve responds, and this is Steve getting a little bit of baller back. He says, "Thank you." And by the way. Just so you know, for future reference, not a great idea to jump out of your car and ask for an interview in a parking garage. Not the best way to get somebody to agree to an interview. And uh, he closed the door, and I walked back to the car, and uh, that was it. You know, he drove away. Turtleneck boy, fuck, he's getting his fuck boy energy back, baby. (laughs) Back to Bill Buckner. Cowboy Bill Buckner. <laughs> he's uh, he's looking good, tall in the saddle, cowboy hat on. And he's Zap Rooter's, his own film. He finally has the nerve to watch it years later of his error that Luke, cost the Red Sox. How did it, it happen? It was a one-armed man. Are you saying that I killed my wife? Are you saying that I crushed her skull and that I shot her? Who was in the stands. It was Babe Ruth's ghost. Like, <laughs> like slapping it to the side a little bit. Curse of the Bambino. You can see for just one one frame on that video, you can see Babe Ruth's face 
with three hot dogs shoved in his mouth, <laughs> push that ball off to the side. And now he says, it was the floppy glove. It was the floppy glove, Jerry. It was so loose, it went concave on him. His motion was perfect. His ankles held up strong. He was in great position for it, but he was moving, and the glove <laughs> flopped a little to the side. I might have rolled my eyes a little bit. Look, I like, I like, I genuinely like Bill Buckner a lot, but I was like, dude, you either caught it or you didn't. Man, whatever, whatever gets you through the night, right? <laughs> but he was a little bitter, and it took him a while to come around. Finally, the Red Sox would win a series. Gosh, I think since this time they've won like what three or four. Yeah, but how amazing was that 2004 win when they finally broke the curse? Well, we'll get to that 30 for 30 eventually. That was pretty special. That that 2004 Red Sox team is interesting in among itself. But Buckner still is bitter on the way he got scapegoated for everything. But since that victory, a lot of Sox fans are like, yo, we're sorry, Bill Buckner. Now it's cool. We got a championship. We don't care about that anymore. Now, if we didn't have this championship, I mean, fuck you forever, Bill. But, <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, man, uh, just win, baby. Now Buckner, win changes everything. Bill's an emotional guy. And, uh, and he said that... I, I, I really had to forgive the... the not, not, the, not the fans of Boston, just per se, but I, I, would, I would have to say, in my, in my heart, I had to forgive the media. Uh, uh, you know, for what you know, they put me and my family through. After the second Red Sox World Series, three years late after the first one in 2007, he finally accepted the invitation. Finally, and he goes back to the interview. He's still so emotional about it. Yeah, but uh, what did he say? His daughter was a reporter. Yeah. And after a little mini breakdown, again, at the thought of how he was treated back then, says, like, I had to forgive you. You and didn't have to forgive me for making that error. Red Sox fans had signs that said, we forgive you, Bill Buckner. And it, and it wasn't like, even no, so much. He, I have to forgive you. It was his, and he also stated it was more about what how it affected his family more than himself. Because, I mean, I'm the same way. You can shit on me all you want, but you shit on people I care about. And that's a whole different story. Unless I'm at a baseball game with them, then I'm peacing out as soon as they get in trouble. I don't know. I can't remember y'all's names. You should be ashamed of yourself, cowards. Man, it seemed like he found everybody for this documentary. He found this never-before-seen camcorder footage from the upper deck. He found the guy who tried to fight him. He found the security guards. He couldn't talk to his friends, his bitch-ass friends. Steve Bartman, to this day is still notoriously reclusive, even despite a Cubs victory. I've, I kind of, I look up Steve Bartman from time to time and it still seems like there's not much more new about him. He's the J.D. Salinger of Cubs fans. But there have been players and staff organizations that have apologized on behalf of the organization, especially since the World Series victory. Yeah, this but, was fun too. We got a couple rumors. They're like, I heard he moved to London. I heard he moved to Miami. Yeah. I heard he's changed his name and got surgery, and now he's uh, Renee Richards. I heard he's still living in some sub- suburb around the Chicago area. I heard he hasn't really left. Yeah, that, that's the one that seemed like it had the truth. He still lives in Chicago. He won't say where. He still has never done an interview, even though he's been offered upwards of $100,000 for autograph signings or I would have a hard appearances. time turning that down. He must be doing well. There was some point in this. Where you just felt, I mean, they might have even said it, but you just felt like if this had to happen to somebody, Steve Barton was the perfect person to handle it. 
how stoic he was through this whole thing, how he never freaked out and how he sent out that one apology letter. Like, look, the thing that hurts me the most is I'm a Cubs fan and I hurt my team. And then he just disappeared off the face of the earth. He didn't go on Sports Center every hour to defend himself or to yell at everybody else or to have a you know a crying apology to her. He just handled it really great. The rage of a city on this guy, and he's the classiest one in this incident. But as soon as the Cubs won their World Series, 2016, this film wasn't done yet. We talk about the Red Sox getting their redemption, Bill Buckner coming back, forgiving the media, getting joined back to the team, getting a big cheer from the crowd. Now the Cubs won in 2016. And I was drunk as hell in my basement watching that game. How do you feel? How do you feel? Does Steve Bartman even... I, is there a hint of anger at that play again? What do, what do you no, feel about the curse? No. I mean... The curse is nothing now, right? This era is a lot more prominent in my mind than a lot of, you know, this era, the modern era of the Cubs, admittedly. Um, but no, I was... I knew that, you know, Bartman blame was bullshit long before... The Cubs got their World Series victory. I think there's a lot of people, especially a lot of people in this movie, that should probably owe Bartman a personal apology. It's nice Wayne did it, but it's not his fault directly. We just want to blame him for everything else. Yeah, I'll hide in the backseat of his car and then pop out one day and be like, hey, on behalf of everybody who watched the documentary, I apologize. How do you feel about black cats and goats at this point? I love black cats. Goats are funny. Goats are one of nature's funniest animals. You heard it right here from a Cubs fan. Goats, black cats, and Steve Bartman. All, all right. Yeah, good stuff. Drew, we don't rate documentaries, especially creepy documentaries. Are you still scared? I mean, that level of piss is pretty large. I'm scared of crowds of angry people. (laughs) Yeah, damn. (laughs) It takes a village to build something up. It takes a village to rip shit apart, too. But we can turn on a dime. Shit, yeah. Uh, but we don't rate documentaries on a star rating scale. It's a Herzog rating scale. Spooky Herzog? Ghost Herzogs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to try to throw in a different one so that Brian has to make a whole lot of different icons <laughs> for the website. But this one's in Ghost Herzogs. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess the Herzogs we use, we could just say are Ghost yeah. Herzogs. Uh, retroactively, we're going to make a couple of those documentaries. Uh, those were in Rainbow Wig Herzogs. <laughs> I'm going to give this one through five ghost herd zogs. <laughs> you can give this one through five ghost herd zogs. We're going to combine them for best out of 10 ghost herd zogs. <laughs> I got to say, despite now sitting back and we've had a few years of a World Series victory, things have moved on for the Red Sox. Things have moved on for the Cubs. And that's a good feeling. But despite that fact, just the memory of this and this time, it still felt kind of raw to me. I understand logically that it's not Steve Bartman's fault, but watching this go through all this motions again, it did feel a little real. It did feel a little raw. And it's not Steve Bartman's fault, but it's not nothing. It wasn't nothing. This, I mean, they made a 30 for 30 about a foul ball. He got an entire city that wanted his head. <laughs> yeah. So now we're at this point, and things are a little different now, but this was such an important time in, in modern Cubs history. Um, what if Doug the Bounty Hunter was there in 1994? Shit. Or 2003. Look, I heard it was John Belushi's ghost that actually <laughs> pushed that ball. What was the bounty on Bartman's head after this game? <laughs> they should have given him the, the money for the ball. They should have. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, that, that asshole who picked it up, come on. 
Now, Alex Gibney, uh, I feel like Alex Gibney, he almost makes, I mean, this is basically a television documentary, like a documentary that was meant for television. And I feel like Alex Gibney's on the high end of that. There's a few things we laughed at, like the weird animations. It didn't seem like every moment was necessary, but this is a good story. Maybe I got a little Cubs fan bias, but but you know what? I, I'm just a Cubs fan when it comes to baseball, like the Blackhawks can go fuck off, fuck right off forever, you know? Like Friends I'm not, all the way, baby. Fang I, fingers. I loved the Bulls when I was a kid, but any but if you didn't have a basketball team in your hometown in the 90s, you liked Michael Jordan and the Bulls. That's not really a thing. But it's Not just, in New York. But baby, I'm going to give this, man, I can give it four. I'm going to give it four out of five Ghost Herd Zogs. How about you, Drufus? I started out really hating this documentary <laughs> i could not believe the kind of the arrogance it took to have your narrative frame for your film about this really well-known moment that everybody is a huge story for sports fans i'm a little shocked because it starts out with the mets winning the world Series. No, no that part i loved i hated the framing device of him being interviewed by somebody about making this documentary that i hear you to frame this documentary <laughs> like that's a just putting my balls on the table here. Look at him. I w- he should have referenced himself in the third person like, And so Alex Gibney went on WGN Radio. <laughs> oh, that would have been great. That would have pulled it way up. <laughs> or if he just did that during the interview. He's like, uh, Alex Gibney's making a documentary <laughs> about this topic that you're talking about. And uh, when Alex Gibney talked to <laughs> this guy who knows Steve Bartman. Yeah, that was kind of an... And then he went straight into... After the little... The very first introduction that talks about, okay, Catching Hell, Steve Bartman's story. It's like, now I'm a Boston fan, so I'm going to talk about the Red Sox. I actually grew up in Boston. For half an hour. <laughs> I didn't hate it. It was fine. <laughs> but it, it was a good framing thing because the parallels are so obvious between Buckner. I did think it took a little too long to get to the point a lot of the time. And they showed pretty much every angle of replay you could possibly show. I loved it. Which means something to the story. Yeah. But they they dragged it out. Like, we know what you're getting at. We know what happened. <laughs> they just dragged out getting to the Steve Bartman part. But man, the legwork he must have done, the things he dug up, that camcorder footage from the fan in the upper deck was so incredible something you've never seen outside of this documentary it's such a a great artifact of this moment being able to see the crowd outside and how optimistic cubs fans were and then immediately go into this kind of this dread and then the (laughs) anger that's what you get for having optimism and just feeling that mob mentality come through (laughs) this kind of amateur footage and you're seeing him like the guy who's filming it Getting in on the chance. He's pointing at him. He's like, there he is. There's that asshole. It's that guy. (laughs) He's the piece of shit. On the whole stadium just turning on this guy until it gets to a point where the security's really working to keep him safe. That was incredible to see unfold live. And then the interviews with the people, like the security guards. If it didn't have the interviews with the security guard who brought him into her own apartment to try to keep him safe. Like, those are the little touches yeah, it really made this her, she really helped build the drama. That's what made this documentary so good. Even though it didn't really go into, you know, anything besides what we all know by now is that yeah, you guys shouldn't have gotten mad at Steve Bartman. 
<laughs> it didn't really have any conclusion besides that. Man, these details, these little parts that he got to were so great, were so telling, and really fleshed out and painted this picture probably better than we've ever seen it, or ever will see it, since he's not a guy who gives interviews. This is kind of, to me, the definitive telling of an absolutely amazing sports story. So I'm going to have to go all the way up to four spooky ghost Herzogs for Ooh, it. Ooh, yeah. I've, I re they really, Alex really, uh, despite the flaws, really conveyed the drama very well in there. Do you think Alex Gibney drew his own goat for the illustration while Alex Gibney was being interviewed on WGN for Alex Gibney? I wouldn't be surprised. And after he <laughs> finished drawing it, he was like, look what Alex Gibney did. We're going to put this in Alex Gibney's movie. So you give it four, I give it four. That is eight out of ten. Ghost Herzogs for Catching Hell by, hell. by the Gib. Catching Hell. What the hell? Hell. Shut the hell up. Yeah, Creeptober, hell. baby. Can you imagine a whole baseball stadium full of people who hate your fucking guts? Fucking terrifying. <laughs> it is fucking terrifying. Now clean up that puddle of piss and stop your crying. Um, clean it up with your hair. <laughs> Keep on docking. As the Red Sox came down the tunnel, there wasn't a sound from any of them. And then somebody crashed a bat against a wall, broke it in half, and I heard a single word, and that word was Tonight's guest conductor for Take Me Out to the Ball Game, 16-time Grammy Award winner, Sting. All right, Cubs fans, let me hear you. I found an old hot dog under my breath. Sorry. Gotta stop. <laughs>